Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. So welcome to episode 16 of Sleep Talk podcast, and I'm joined again by my co-host, Dr. Moira Junger. Hello, Dave. Hello, everyone. Now, this month we're going to talk about something a little more geeky, but we're going to get into some of the neurotransmitters that are involved in regulating sleep, and in particular, orexin. And orexin is really quite interesting and pretty topical. It was only really discovered and its role described in sleep in 1998, and it seems to be one of the key neurotransmitters both in sleep and wake regulation. And it's been relevant for narcolepsy since it was found in the early 2000s that people with narcolepsy have an orexin deficiency. But now it's actually relevant for people with insomnia because some of the first orexin antagonists as medications are coming onto the market as treatments for insomnia. That's, that's good. I mean, as a non-prescriber, even I'm excited about that, just to have some other options. And clearly, we know what a strong role orexin is playing in either being not sleepy enough or too sleepy. So, yeah, it's great. Yeah, looking and forward I, to talking through some issues. Yeah, and always good to have tools that act via different mechanisms. Mm. So, you know, we've already got a cohort of drugs, but having something that works via a, a different mechanism certainly gives us other opportunities. Yeah. So what's been happening over the last month, Dave? Oh, well, on a personal note, this is not really sleep relevant, but I've got a son who's been found to have a genetic mutation called SCN2A, which causes a severe form of genetic epilepsy. And it was SCN2A Awareness Day on February 24th. Mm. Uh, and coincidentally, in the same week, Will had surgery on both his legs and uh, is now in a wheelchair for six weeks. So that's causing issues with sleep yes. for us at home. Yeah, and him. Yeah, both all of you. And I had a night in hospital and got to just be reminded about how hospitals are terrible <laughs> places for sleeping. Aren't they? They are. Do you think that we can do anything about that one day? Yeah, there's been some small studies looking yeah. at things to improve them, but you know, as you know, hospitals are big institutions, oh, and yes, cha change yeah. happens very yeah. slowly. It won't happen overnight, but it will happen. Maybe. Yeah, and the other thing that reminded me of too is, like a lot of kids with epilepsy, you know, myself as a carer and a parent of someone who's got epilepsy and other neurodevelopmental problems, it really does have an impact on your sleep as a carer and as a parent. Oh, no doubt, yeah. Always sort of listening out for, you know, what's happening during during the night. Was that a something? Was that a seizure? Is some, something else going on? So after a period so, of good health, we're back to listening out for Will getting out of bed with plasters on both <laughs> legs and worried about him fall, falling over. Oh, okay. Well, good luck with that. I hope it's um, short-lived. <laughs> All right. So what else has been in the news around sleep, Moira? Well, we've had a lot to do with sleep, really. Sleep's been in the media quite a bit in the last month. There was a very big report released by the Sleep Health Foundation. I'm sure you saw that. Mm -hmm. It gained a lot of attention um, internationally and particularly in Australia with all sorts of forms, all forms of media. I had an interview <laughs> with Red Simons on our local ABC radio, which was fine. It actually went, went fine, but I had all my messages from this big report and I was swatting away for hours to make sure I knew and then he just well I think we might have a link to it I'm not sure but he just asked me what was it that just is CPAP good for a hang a good cure for a hangover <laughs> oh you, you did you did really well with that interview Moira <laughs> I always find Red Simons he's he's smart you know, he's really a good, in, you know, dynamic sort of interviewer, mm. but he goes off topic and you don't know where you're going to end up. <laughs> and I was sort of lamenting it, but then I thought later, I thought, you know what, 
it doesn't matter, like whatever forum we have. And if he wanted to make, he was just making light of a serious issue. But the messages I did get out, even about CPAP, which is not my plan, to, was, was probably good. Like if even if, you know, a couple hundred people might have thought, oh, that's good to know about some aspect or even about the Sleep Health Foundation, for, for instance, because I'm trying very much to make it a household name one day. Like it would be really great to people to know what, who we are and what we do. And what's the Sleep Health Foundation planning for World Sleep Day? Yes, well, I'm glad you should ask that because <laughs> I want to put a link. I want everyone listening. On March 17th is the World Sleep Day. And we're all getting a bit tired, I think, the media and all of us getting a bit tired of these awareness days, like such and such day, and so it's losing its impact a little bit. But instead of just being a token day, we're actually, uh, the Sleep Health Foundation are having a call to action for the community and for all of us, actually. You'll get an email from me, or from the Sleep Health Foundation I've drafted. Everyone in the Australasian Sleep Association and the Sleep Health Foundation are being asked, as well as the general community, if they can, if they want to participate, to turn off their screens an hour or just earlier than they normally would do Mm -hmm. and and the slogan really is to swap screen time for sleep time so Mm -hmm. to turn off your screens earlier get into bed a bit earlier see what happens for you on world sleep day so to do that on the eve on maybe potentially do it on march 16th yeah and there's a small questionnaire we've got attached to our facebook and probably on the website as well so look out for that sounds good i'll I'll take up the challenge (laughs) good what about what else has been in the news? Or yeah, what? there was a, an interesting uh, result from the TGA. So that's the Therapeutic Goods Administration. So that's the body in Australia that regulates drugs. And there had been an application for melatonin to be available over the counter, like it is like in, in the states, so yeah, every like drugstore, every corner. Every, yeah. yeah, many other countries. Mm. The decision was made to keep it as a prescription only product in Australia. Mm. And the TGA cited concerns about people using it instead of getting medical advice or mm. going to get medical advice. Mm. And I reckon that it's hard. I reckon you could mount an argument either way yeah. of having something available that's more accessible versus you don't make it accessible and you require people to see a doctor. Yeah, they'll get better advice potentially, but they may not access the treatment. And I don't know what I think on that because don't, cause melatonin itself, you know, it's not really a hypnotic per se. You know how it's more a sleep sort of synchronizer. Mm-hmm. And people in the general community do think they expect it to act like a hypnotic, that you're going to take it yeah. and kind of crash out into some sort of sleep. But we just know that, you know, melatonin does promote sleepiness and it's a part of a chain of things that happen to to get you into a state where you can sleep and then maintain sleep, like get your body clock aligned. So I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm sort of, I was always fairly okay with the fact that it was prescription only and mm-hmm. sort of used as it's meant to be used and that it's, not you know you kind of know what's in it too hopefully like i don't know you know i don't know what's in half the stuff that's (laughs) like if it's if it's the melatonin of a a cow or or that had mad cow disease i don't know it just seems a little bit sort of out of control in other places i think yeah i I agree you go into the drugstore in the u.s and there's shelves of melatonin yeah so i don't think that's the right balance either and ranging from one milligram to like well over 10, like yeah. massive difference of doses and no one seems to really know what I mean, what they're doing, what's prescribed for them. Yeah. So, yeah, so go TGA. <laughs> <laughs> they got my vote. <laughs> All right. And I just want to highlight there's an ongoing research study being run by Monash University that's looking into how behaviours can contribute to parasomnia, so things like sleepwalking and sleep talking. So if you or anyone you know has sleepwalking and sleep talking, is interested in learning more about how behaviours might contribute to it, uh, you can participate via the website in the study. It's monashsleepstudy.wordpress.com and you can contact the researcher Isabel Hull. Good. So just for Australians only, unfortunately. 
So the theme for this month is orexin. And as I talked about in the introduction, orexin is a key neurotransmitter in the regulation of sleep and wake and relevant not just for narcolepsy, but also for insomnia. And the regulation of sleep and wake has got a very long history. If we think about how uh, people thought about sleep really up until the 1930s and even into the 1940s, it was thought of a mystical thing. So if bad things happened at night, there had to be some sort of spiritual explanation or then the Freudian explanation in the 1890s of conflict theory, mm. the sort of the id and the subconscious coming out as yeah. an explanation for nervous energy because yeah. it was assumed that at nighttime nerve cells went quiet and essentially went to sleep. Yes. The, the body goes to sleep, so therefore cells within the body must have gone to sleep and there's no energy. And now we know there's lots of things that can happen during sleep. The yeah. brain is quite active. Yeah, absolutely. And that was with the first brain recordings in the 1930s and 1940s. People discovered that nerve cells, in fact, in the brain are very active mm. during sleep and during room sleep can be as active as the brain is when it's awake. And with that being able to measure sleep and some observations through the sort of 1910s, 1920s in Europe, people began to think about a neurological basis for sleep or how the brain regulates sleep. So rather than seeing sleep as just a withdrawal of wake, seeing as a state that's actually quite active in a brain and regulation sense. And some of the first understanding of that came from some observations of an epidemic of a flu-like illness in the 1910s and 1920s in Europe. And a researcher, uh, Von Economo, looked at people after the flu-like epidemic. There was a subset of people who were very sleepy, sleeping for 20 hours a day, mm -hmm. and another subset of people who was tired but didn't sleep and in actual fact only slept a couple of hours at night, so had a more insomnia sort of phenotype. Mm. And then if those people died, he was able to look at their brains and showed that for each of those groups, there was a loss of nerve cells in particular parts of the hypothalamus. Mm. And the people who'd had insomnia had a problem with the anterior or the front part of the hypothalamus, a loss of some nerve cells. And people who had sleepiness had loss of nerve cells in the posterior hypothalamus. And as Renical research went along into the 1980s and 1990s, people were finding that those same regions of the brain look like they're actually involved in sleep and wake regulation. Mm. Finally, in 1998, two different groups around the world published on orexin, or its other name is hypocretin, and nerve cells found in the lateral hypothalamus, the same area where von Economo had described these changes in the brain in people with sleep problems as being a very important neurotransmitter in the regulation of wake and sleep. And it's since been found that orexin is important in maintaining wakefulness. If you've got orexin, you'll be more alert and more awake during the day. And it's also important in stabilising sleep and wake regulation. So people who don't have orexin, which is actually people with narcolepsy, have developed a problem via some process, they lose orexin neurons, have problems with what we call sleep stability. So they have little, while they're awake, very prone to flipping into sleep. While they're asleep, very prone to flicking into wake or having pieces of wake-like behaviour during sleep, vivid dreams, movement. You know, all the things that people describe with narcolepsy during sleep. So it's relatively new, isn't it? It's really not it's less than 20 years ago. Yeah, it really is. You know, that 1998 was the first publication. So, yeah, just coming under that yeah. coming under that 20-year mark. And one of the exciting developments for, for me is on the back of that research, so first understanding the role of erection in sleep and wake in sort of late 1990s, early 2000s, now come 2015, in the US, there was a medication approved as an orexin blocker to treat insomnia. On that recognition from the early 2000s that orexin was very important in promoting wakefulness, people who were missing orexin were sleepy 
and therefore if drug companies could manufacture a drug to block orexin, it might be a helpful treatment for insomnia. Mm. And that process evolved over that sort of 12 to 13 years and you finally get a product for insomnia that we'll talk a bit more a bit later. Yeah, so I remember that was approved around about then in the States, wasn't it, but not here. Yeah, so I got approved in Australia in October of 2016. Yeah, and recently, yeah. yeah, hopefully will be available soon. So to help us understand a little bit more about orexin and the biology of orexin and how blocking orexin may be different from using some other sleep medications, I had the chance to talk to Professor Daniel Hoyer. He's the head and chair of Department of Pharmacology and Therapeutics at the University of Melbourne and had originally trained in pharmacology at I won't pronounce the French properly, but University Louis Pasteur in Strasbourg, uh, and had done a lot of postdoctoral work, including some at the University of Pennsylvania. So Professor Hoyer has published a large number of papers on a range of different molecules and neurotransmitters involved in the brain, particularly in sleep disorders. So Danny, thanks for joining us and talking about orexin. And just to start off with, what is orexin? Orexin is a neuropeptide that has been discovered, interestingly, by two different groups pretty much at the same time. Louis de Lecher was a postdoc at Scripps uh, with Greg Sutcliffe, and they were looking for specific uh, new peptides expressed in the brain, and they used genetic data. Their ideas were these peptides could be cut and eventually found a region in the lateral hypothalamus, about three to 7,000 cells in the mouse and in the rat, and maybe 30,000 in humans, that expresses very specifically this neuropeptide. Actually, there's two neuropeptides, oryxin A and oryxin B, and this is not specific for this one, so metastatin comes in two forms as well, and they're expressed very specifically in uh, the lateral hypothalamus. Now, interestingly, Masai Yanagizawa, who had found the endothelin uh, early on and the endothelin receptors when he was in Japan, then moved to Dallas, uh, Howard Hughes Institute, and he did the reverse. He was working on two orphan receptors and was trying to find out what the natural ligand would be. And by using brain extracts from then two peptides, oryxin A and oryxin B, to work on these receptors. De Lecher and uh, um, Sutcliffe called it hypocretin because it was produced in the hypothalamus and it looked like an incretin, this hypocretin. Yeah, Nagizawa called it orexin because the first knockouts had a problem with uh, feeding behavior was changed and the animals became obese, although they were eating a little bit less. So orexin eat, that's the name. So officially, the International Union of Pharmacology recognizes orexin for the peptides and the receptors and the international or the human organization, genome organization called UGO, will recognize hypocretin for the genes. And this is how nomenclature was sorted out. I'm a nomenclature freak. <laughs> and then what does orexin do in terms of sleep-wake regulation? Orexin seems to be a master regulator. And um, if we believe uh, some of our colleagues in the United States that came up with an engineering model, uh, that is the switch or the flip-flop model. You can think that as long as the switch is on, that is when orexin is produced by these or these neurons are being active and then produce orexin, you will be awake. And as soon as the switch is off, then you will be asleep. And electrophysiological recordings and also neurochemistry 
has told us that indeed during the day, that is when you're active for animals, it's the reverse, but during the day, orexin levels are high and just before you fall asleep, they even get higher. And as soon as you're asleep, you can see that orexin is going down uh, very quickly. And when you wake up in the morning, orexin activity shows up again. So this is the switch or flip-flop model. It's probably an oversimplification, but um, it seems to fit the bill for the... Yeah, and it is quite a nice model in a clinical sense, particularly when I'm working with humans with erection deficiency, so narcolepsy and cataplexy. It does seem to match a lot of their symptomatology. The obvious link uh, between orexin and sleep is exactly in narcolepsy with cataplexy. So after two or three years after the orexin, the peptides were discovered, it became an accepted biomarker for narcolepsy with cataplexy. That is, in about seven patients with narcolepsy with cataplexy, one could find no cells in the lateral hypothalamus producing orexin or expressing orexin. And in the meantime, it has become an accepted biomarker in that CSF levels uh, of orexin are extremely low or undetectable in patients suffering from narcolepsy with cataplexy. Yeah, so thankfully for patients, we're not in the phase of doing uh, lumbar punctures at the moment because if we can elicit a history of cataplexy, that's as good as doing a lumbar puncture at this point. So, so what makes orexin a good target for uh, insomnia treatments or blocking orexin a good target? Well, it is a good target because uh, the pharmaceutical industry needed something new anyway, but it's not good enough. It is, in principle, a good target because in contrast to the classical compounds or targets which are being treated in insomnia, that is essentially benzodiazepines and Z-drugs, which are all activators or positive allostate modulators of the GABA-A receptor, which was in the old days called the benzodiazepine receptor. Benzodiazepines or Z-drugs will produce a state of inactivity very actively, which is what you may like to see, but actually I think that the patients don't really like it. If you push it a little bit, uh, your state of inactivity will not only induce sleep, but you will be pretty much in a state of anesthesia. And if you keep pushing, then you will be dying. So that's certainly from a um, safety aspect, this is not a good thing. The other thing is that, of course, we know that the benzodiazepines or Z-drugs have drug-drug interactions, especially with alcohol. And I would not recommend to anyone to use a combination of zolpidem or and alcohol because you will be legless. <laughs> So this is dangerous. Don't do this. And if you are blocking the orexin receptor, and you talked earlier about how orexin levels start to um, reduce after you go to sleep and then increase in the morning, how does that change the pharmacokinetics or how we think about how its effects manifest across a night? Actually, I hadn't answered your previous question. What is interesting about orexin, it is the peptide is inducing awakeness or probably also awareness and attention. And if you block uh, this peptide by different means, essentially for the time being by blocking the receptors, one expects you to go in a normal state of rest, but not the state of anesthesia. And interestingly, what happens in animals that are getting, and presumably humans as well, getting orexin antagonist, as soon as you stimulate them, they're able to wake up and function normally 
which is certainly not the case with benzodiazepines on Zebra. What is interesting about the approach is that we do not expect to have the side effects that you see with benzodiazepines, Z-drugs, or even histamine uh, compounds. That is, you are, number one, you're in a state of very profound brain inactivation. Number two, it's difficult to wake you up uh, when you're using these compounds, especially when you use higher doses. There is a number of events that happen with Z-drugs and benzodiazepines uh, that range from memory impairment to literally a black hole where you don't remember anything. Literally the same thing as what happens after, quite often after anesthesia. And of course, you don't want to have memory impairment. Next morning, if you suffer from sleep uh, or insomnia, sleep deprivation, you would like to be entirely functional next morning, yeah. which we expect to have with um, orexin antagonist. Yeah. And I saw someone today, actually, who had the insight, you know, they'd attributed their memory impairment to lack of sleep. But in fact, they're on a number of benzodiazepines and a couple of Z drugs. And when we managed to stop them, their memory impairment was better. Yeah. I mean, another point, uh, certainly about benzodiazepines and Z-drugs, is that these compounds seem to wipe out REM sleep pretty much completely. REM sleep is rapid eye movement sleep. This is where you tend to have your dreams. You may have dreams during other periods of uh, sleep, but REM sleep is the period where you may have dreams. And dreams may be needed to do memory consolidation. I mean, there's a lot of arguments about whether this is or the slower sleep is involved in memory consolidation. Bottom line is that if you are completely deprived of REM sleep, then your memory is not going to get better either. Now, benzodiazepines do this, Z-drugs do this, histamine probably will have an effect. For what we know, in all preclinical studies, when you look at orexin antagonists, they do not have any effect on memory. And combinations of orexin antagonists and, uh, say, alcohol don't seem to affect memory either. I've seen it. There's no worsening of the effect. There's no drug-drug interaction because it's different targets. And Suvorexin's the first to market of the orexin antagonists, and that's something we'll soon get some hands-on experience with in Australia. But what's the future hold? In five years' time, what will our tools be in ability to manipulate the orexin receptor? So Suvorexin is a dual receptor antagonist, that is, it blocks both orexin-1 and orexin-2 receptors. And I think that um, the rationale behind this was when you either knock out orexin in mice or you knock out both receptors in mice, you have a very strong sleep phenotype. Now, I would argue that maybe this is too much of a sleep phenotype because these animals, if stimulated properly, will show narcolepsy with cataplexy. Now, the argument was that in the first studies that were run by Actelian uh, Biotech, which is located in Basel, which just has been taken over, they had the first orexin antagonist in the clinic, and they said we have no evidence for narcolepsy in animals treated with almorexin, that was the name of the compound, neither in dogs, rats, and actually in humans. The problem with narcolepsy with cataplexy is that it is produced when you have strong stimulation with negative or positive feelings. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, then you can induce narcolepsy with cataplexy. 
And actually, this is recognized uh, in the leaflet from uh, Silverexant, where eventually show that, uh, yes, narcolepsy with cataplexy can occur. And actually, it is contraindicated with patients suffering from narcolepsy with cataplexy. So these are the dual antagonists. And all the studies that we have done in rats and mice suggest pretty much the same. That is, you have the potential for narcolepsy with cataplexy. The other thing that we have noticed repeatedly is that dual antagonists seem to increase sleep essentially by promoting REM sleep and have almost no effects on slow-wave sleep or deep sleep. And this is what Merck says as well after their phase 2 and phase 3 studies. Now you can debate at length whether this is positive or negative. We tend to think that dual antagonists are not producing something that I would call physiological sleep. We have studied uh, animals that have the peptide knocked out or the oxygen 1 or the oxygen 2 or both receptors knocked out. And we've come to the conclusion that to get sleep, all you need to do is block the oxygen 2 receptor. And we had a program at Novartis, and we're not the only ones, to develop orexin 2 selective antagonists. And as far as I can tell, our compounds that were selective were producing normal sleep, were increasing REM and non-REM sleep proportionally. And Johnson & Johnson has been doing the same, and actually they are in the clinic with an orexin 2 receptor antagonist. Now, interestingly, everyone else seemed to be still working on dual antagonists, Merck had a backup program with a compound called Philorexant that looks pretty much the same. And actually, Actelion are in the clinic again with a dual antagonist. I think that long term, one will see orexin 2 antagonists appear for sleep, um, well, insomnia treatment. I also think that orexin 1 antagonist uh, may reach uh, the clinic for the treatment of a number of different addictions, including alcohol and different drugs and smoking. But this is very early days. Yes, I'm looking forward to having those extra tools available and things we can use with patients. So thanks very much for those insights. My pleasure. Thank you. So tell me some more then, Dave, based on that good interview you've done with the professor <laughs> um, about the clinical use of the Avroxin antagonists at the, how do you pronounce it, Suvorexin? Suvorexin. Yeah. Yep. Well, tell me more about it. Like, are you going to likely to use a lot of it, do you think? Oh, certainly, yeah, certainly likely to use it as mm. part of the armamentarium that, mm. that we've got to help manage sleep. And so for a lot of people you and I see with insomnia, we, you know, we recognise there are different subtypes of insomnia. And also too, when people think about their insomnia or talk about insomnia, they'll often say things like, I can't switch off my brain. You know, that's a common sort of way people yeah. describe it. Yeah. And we talk about that as a hyperarousal model of insomnia, yeah. thinking of that as a failure of the alerting system to switch off yeah. at night. It is like that. It's almost like there's, just, there's, can't, there's no switch. It's, yeah. just, it's awful. They just can't switch it off. And so physiologically, sleep is off, sorry, sleep problems like insomnia are often not a problem of the sleep system per se. Mm. Mm. They're often more a problem of the wake system yeah, sorry, and it yeah. not switching off. Yeah. So that's where I think Suvorexant will have a role mm. as being something that can help with mm. switching off the wake system. Hopefully. Yeah, in addition to the non-drug strategies, oh, that of, were, course. You know, that, <laughs> of course, that work well. They, you know, they can can work really well. But I, you know, I've learned enough over the years to know that they can work together. 
yep. and not necessarily either or. Yeah, absolutely. And that's really the key. If people go for a medication-only strategy with insomnia, mm. almost always at some point they crash and burn. Yeah. That's why using non-drug strategies like cognitive behavioural mm. therapy is just an absolute key. Because yeah. even if people are using medications, it means the medication's got less work to do. Yeah. If for some Absolutely. reason um, they ha- get a problem with the medication, they've got a plan B yeah. and, they, and they feel like they've got some skills. So that so this drug, that's relatively new. Has it been used? Is it being used obviously the States, now Australia, what about other countries? So far it had only been approved in the US and then in Japan and now it's just got approval in Australia and will start to be available from March or April in Australia. Mm-hmm. So some other history to that, the way it was approved, is important because in the US, for various reasons, the FDA or the regulatory body in the United States approved a dose of 10 milligrams. And my reading of a lot of the research studies of Suvorexant was that a dose of 20 milligrams is probably the effective dose. Oh. But because the US drug regulatory body is very risk averse and in a sort of a still knocks environment, very yes. risk averse yes. about any sleeping yeah. tablets, yeah. they decided to approve a 10 milligram dose. Oh. And so that may be a dose that's actually not as effective. And then so you launch that onto the market in the US and a lot of the reviews of people using it in the US were not particularly favorable. Saying, yeah, this doesn't, the 10 milligram this doesn't do yeah. much. Yeah. And so it got a bit of a bad rap mm. in the US, not for safety reasons, but people saying, yeah, you know what, probably doesn't do a whole lot. But for those regulatory reasons, my suspicion is the dose was probably not the right dose to get right. approved. In Australia, the dose that has been approved is a 20 milligram dose, which I think fits better with the research mm. in being an effective dose. Oh, so it'd be interesting good. to see how that goes with clinical use. Yeah. In is Australia. it one of those things that the 20 milligram is the one tablet or... Yeah, it's not like, say, a 10 milligram one and you take two. Yeah. Yeah, because that could work anywhere between, like if some, for, some, for some people the 10 milligram might might be quite good. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. it may well, yeah. may well work well for some people, but the recommended starting dose in Australia is going to be a 20 milligram mm. dose. Okay. And one of the other interesting things in the way Suvorexin's been approved in Australia is it's the first sleep drug that's approved for ongoing use. So pretty much mm. all other drugs have they're got like a... four weeks or six weeks, really, technically, yeah. aren't they? So they're all four weeks, yeah. with the exception of the melatonin we've got approved, which has got a three-month restriction on it. But only in um, over 55, yeah. technically, I believe. Yeah, exactly. Is that true still? Yeah, that is true. So it's, a, it's weird that melatonin's approved in Australia for people... For insomnia, for people over the age of 55, for up to three months. Yeah. So, yeah, Suvorexin is going to be approved for ongoing use with a requirement that people are reviewed after three months to make sure it's still working, to make sure they're not getting side effects, make sure they're doing other things like the non-drug therapies and not just a set and forget, you stay on this tablet for forevermore. No. I mean, depending on how long they've had it for, the insomnia, how long, well, the how quickly it came on surely i would think because i'm biased in my, i would think most people don't need to be on it forever yeah. like a short short amount of time so like weeks and months and that's my my thinking mm. as well but you you and i both see a subset of people who even though we go hard with the non-drug therapies yeah they still need a bit of help yes absolutely and so but, but it's, it's definitely uh, not the majority exactly yeah. exactly so but that's been a difficult subset for me to treat clinically mm. because without a drug that's approved for ongoing use 
they go to the pharmacy each month and the pharmacist's like, well, you've been on this for more than four weeks, yeah. you've got to stop. Yes. And yeah. things that, even though they may have been very diligent with their non-drug therapies and That's right, yeah. they may just have other medical reasons why they've got, yeah. got ongoing problems. So in that sense, it's good that there'd be less stigma about if it's ongoing, it's yeah. okay. Not, not any shame around having to have it for another month or another yeah. month. Yeah, and we'll see how that gets implemented. I'm curious to see how that goes because it is a bit of a culture shift in the way people think about mm. sleeping tablets. And you know if it's got any, any spectacular bad press associated with it, like like Silnox does, like you know those weird parasomnies that can happen, which are apparently very rare. You know, but yeah, but so no, known, there, you know. there's been none of that come out in the US about negative effects. Mm-hmm. Really, the bad press in the US has been about it doesn't work it doesn't that do well. Much, yeah. And I reckon part of that's tied up in dose, but I also reckon part of it's tied up in something I think is going to be important with the clinical use is that it just works differently mm. because it works via the orexin mechanism mm. and it's reducing wake drive. It's not like things that work on the, the other side of the equation, the sleep system, so benzodiazepines and drugs, benzodiazepine receptor agonists like Stillnox that enhance GABA and give people that sense of the black curtain came yeah. down, yes. time passed, I knew nothing yeah. of what happened. Yes. Because it's not going to work like that, it'll feel different and so may not meet an expectation mm. of what people... That it's working. It's not, yeah. not, not knockout effect enough. Yeah. Mm. So the clinical trials show, you know, three months, the, the lengthening of sleep, you know, you get about 28 minutes more sleep each night at three months. So, you know, it's like... That's significant, Sim- really. Yeah, similar it? size to benzodiazepines, mm. but sort of think about it as feeling different. Mm. And I reckon that's going to be one of my main challenges when I talk to people yeah. about what to expect, Yeah, particularly if I'm looking then at switching people from benzodiazepines yeah. to subarexant yes. because people often get wedded <clears throat> to how benzodiazepine sleep feels mm. or how sleep feels with another type of sedative. Yeah. And even if you may get more sleep and sleep may be just as good a quality and actually just as restorative, it doesn't feel as deep. Yeah. There might be similar issues to the, the modafinil versus Dex or yeah. something like that. You know, it just has a different feel. Yeah. Not, you don't get that hit. That's, I think, a challenge for clinicians in using Superexcent is try to, trying to communicate that it's not necessarily going to feel like a benzodiazepine feels. And the data from the clinical trials as well show Superexcent's a better stay-asleep medication or get back to sleep when you wake at night medication than it is a push you off to sleep medication. Mm. Whereas the benzodiazepines are almost opposite. They're yeah. better at front loading the night, so better at get you off to sleep. Yes. But not so not good maintaining in maintaining it. Yeah, yeah, not so good in the second half of the night. Yeah. So that's insomnia. What about the other side of the equation in narcolepsy? Yeah, so orexin has an important role in narcolepsy. As we talked about earlier, narcolepsy with cataplexy is an acquired orexin deficiency where people have low levels of orexin. So the f- perfect treatment for narcolepsy would be replacing orexin. Um, unfortunately, that's not available yeah. at the moment, but there is research going on looking to be able to do that. So although our current narcolepsy treatment supportive treatment with wake-promoting medications like modafinil or dexamphetamine or, or Ritalin, in an ideal world, if we could replace orexin or put people on an orexin and agonist, something that sort of boosted the effects of orexin, it should relieve all of the symptoms of narcolepsy. So the disturbed sleep and the nightmares and the vivid imagery at night, as well as the sleepiness during the day. How far off do you think are we? Yeah, so still a ways, but the main researchers in this area are doing research in animal models at the moment of orexin replacement. And there's been some recent advancements in the ability 
of to be able to characterize the shape of receptors and therefore design a molecule that's going to fit into the erection receptor. And that's been a key breakthrough because the erection receptor has been hard to make the right sort of molecule to sit on it and stimulate it. But that's really changed now. So drugs are being developed to stimulate the erection receptor and really looking at ways of delivering that to the brain. And they estimate in five to 10 years, there'll be human studies looking at erection replacement as a treatment for narcolepsy. So not, not too far off, and it's a, a long way, isn't it, if you're yeah, suffering so, badly it, at the moment with narcolepsy? Yeah, exactly. In medical research sense, it's not too far off. Yeah. If you're someone who's got narcolepsy yeah, day to day, it's, yeah. it's a world away. Yeah. And it may be that in the future, erection or modulating the erection receptor is one of the things that allows us to control wake and sleep. Mm. And, you know, this this horrid sort of 1984 George Orwell sort of vision of everyone's got their own implantable erection modulating device and they can dial up wake and dial up sleep depending mm. on modulating erection. So I hope as a society we never <laughs> get to think about sleep as something we modulate yeah, yeah. like that but the science is interesting so if people are looking for more information on sleep-wake regulation and the role of erexin a really great uh, classic article on this area is cliff saper's paper from nature in 2005 and i'll put a link to that in the show notes i've also written some posts on erexin and suvorexin that you'll find on sleep hub and links in the show notes So we've come to the clinical tip of the month. What's your tip for this month, Dave? So my tip is on the same theme of sleep-wake regulation and thinking about sleep as a neurological process. So when I'm working with uh, people and talking to them about their uh, sleep problems, this is really giving you insight to the geeky way I sort of think about things, is I'm listening to people's symptoms and trying to map them to brain systems and trying to work out the symptoms they describe, their behaviours around sleep and their thinking around sleep and then mapping that to either the circadian system, the body clock system, the wake-promoting system or that erection-driven alertness system or the sleep-promoting system, the sleep homeostatic system. Mm. And so I really find that a helpful clinical framework when I'm trying to think about what psychological strategies I'm going to use or non-drug strategies because there's strategies for each of those or I'm going to use medication, sort of medication strategies. So that's a helpful framework for clinicians to try and sort of work with. And I've put a video on Sleep Hub where I talk through that in a bit more length and that's at sleephub.com.au forward slash assessing hyphen sleep hyphen disorders. Now, what's your pick of the month, Moira? Well, I actually just saw a book that was released in February and there was actually a little excerpt about it in, a lo- in one of our Melbourne-based newspaper weekend newspapers. It caught my eye because the book is called Insomniac City. So, of course, I thought I'd better have a look at that. So I haven't finished reading it yet because I've got another book I need to finish before <laughs> book group next week. <laughs> so, but I just have sort of skimmed it and I can't wait to get back into it. So it's by the author Bill Hayes, and he's called it Insomniac City. And he's actually it's sort of like a memoir, really, referring to New York City as mm-hmm. the, the city for insomniacs because it sort of doesn't sleep, you know, the, the yeah. city itself stays awake. So it's really it's sort of described as both a, uh, a meditation on grief and a celebration of life. It's kind uh-huh. of a memoir of him and his life. Happens to be the partner of the late Oliver Sacks. Uh-huh. So there's lots of really interesting things in it, but there's a little quote I wanted to to say that he talks about, he says, I moved to New York eight years ago and felt it once at home, blah, blah, blah. But he talks about, I recognised my insomniac self. If New York were a patient, 
it would be diagnosed with agrippnia excitata, excita. I don't even know how to pronounce that, <laughs> a Latin word, yeah. a, a rare genetic condition characterised by insomnia, nervous energy, constant twitching and dream enactment, an apt description of a city that never sleeps, a place where one comes to reinvent himself. So isn't that, I mean, that sort of stuff appeals to me yeah. to just to read more about that. So it's yeah. not really about insomnia, but he's a life, a self-described lifelong insomniac and comes to a city where he really sort of has some healing from, from grief. Yeah. And discovers, yeah, reinvents himself. Well, that's really interesting. And, you know, again, for you and I, we do see a lot of people where the insomnia is driven by daytime busyness and nervous energy. Yeah. It's not driven by nighttime no, stuff at all. No, nothing and, sort of per se wrong with the nighttime systems. Yeah, yeah. It's just that buzz yeah. d- during the day. And I certainly got that feel when we were living in Boston. I could, I could handle a weekend in New York, but after <laughs> about two days in Man- Manhattan, I'd just yeah. feel that nervous energy yes. building up and I had to retreat back to Boston. <laughs> but he talks about that too in some parts. About he, can't, he understands why people either love or loathe it. Yeah. Like he just thinks he can understand the traffic's too much and the crowds are too much yeah. and the noise is too much. Yeah. But there's something about the city at night when most yes. of them are, you know, when he's walking around the streets with his camera yeah. at 3 a.m., where that's the real New York for him that, yes. he, that healed him. Yeah. So he should, yeah, I'll give it to you to read. Yeah, I'd, I'd enjoy that. So what about you? What have you, what's caught your eye this month? Yeah, so a really interesting article on sleep in primitive societies. And there's a previous article about a year ago, but this is another one looking at uh, sleep in about 20 people in an agricultural non-electric primitive society in Madagascar. Oh, so, wow. You know, a bit, bit esoteric and a bit out there. but Yeah. You know. uh, and really trying to look at this whole thing of, you know, we're caught in this modern epidemic where we get told in the media we're sleeping less and, mm. you know, it's the sleeping less is the reason for why we're feeling so bad. Mm. And the answer is we just need to sleep more. Well, that paper on primitive society sleep about a year ago showed that in actual fact primitive society slept less than modern westernised societies. Yeah. And maybe it's not the minutes of sleep is why we're feeling bad. And the reason I love this paper, it's yet another primitive society showing exactly the same thing. They sleep less than people in a modern post-industrialized society. Mm -hmm. They sleep in a segmented way. And by that, it means they have three or four hours of sleep. Then they're awake for a while and then a little bit more sleep and their sleep efficiency is more in the sort of 60% range rather than, you know, post-industrial society we think sleep efficiency has got to be in the 85 90 percent we've got to sleep in a single block and sleep's got to be very efficient so they're polyphasic in that sense like different like two or three different spots of sleep yeah so they've got more napping during the day Mm. and more awake period at night Mm. and overall less sleep per 24 hours Mm. than people in a post-industrial society yet not functioning any worse but not having you know not having insomnia as a problem yet in our post-industrialized society it's insomnia it's i'm not sleeping enough i'm feeling tired so the daytimes were less busy clearly in in these primitive societies they're not so stuck on their devices and in the traffic and all the the things they're they're getting they're doing they have more time for napping yeah and have less less sort of um, arousal. Yeah, and that, that also comes back to me. I, you know, I wonder how much of this sort of modern epidemic of tiredness and attributed to sleep deprivation mm. is more of a frazzled. It's more mm. of the busyness and the lack of self-nurturing yeah. that's oh, the reason I'm, for tiredness rather I'm, than the minutes of sleep. I'm, I hear you. That's exactly <laughs> what I think that. I, 
because it's as we've talked about before, I'm sure on the podcast that it's very, very tiring being frazzled, being stressed out. Mm-hmm. It's so exhausting. So it doesn't necessarily mean you haven't had enough sleep because we see that too but of the objective measures we see people with reasonably good amounts of sleep who are really really tired so it's it's multifactorial isn't it it's so hard to know why they're so tired but i think a lot of it i'd love to know more about how we're going to measure just the levels of frazzledness yeah (laughs) but but i think it is important as more and more papers come out challenging this dogma of we're sleeping less and that's Mm. the driver for the tiredness Mm. Hopefully it does refocus a bit on the need for nurturing and the need for self-compassion mm. and, and some yeah. of the things that often get lost in a modern world. But I think that, I mean, people are still, yeah, it's hard because the message is you want to have a message about prioritising sleep, not necessarily that you have to get more, well, you might be getting enough, but you want to get better quality. And the thing is our, most of us are busy. I mean, you working, caring for children, Etc. Don't have the time to just go and have a little nap when you want to. So that's so we we do have to sort of have it in one block mostly. Yeah. So we have to be careful that these messages about these primitive societies. I don't know. We, we can't replicate that though. Yeah. So one of the yeah. So one of the interesting thing was the average amount of time in bed in the primitive societies was about nine and a quarter hours yeah. overnight. Ah. And so, you know, I'd be like, well, I don't have nine and a quarter hours in my day to, you know, allow. <laughs> to just lie there. To just lie there. Yeah. yeah. So you're right. That is one of the challenges mm. of a modern world. Oh, good. I'll have to I'll have a read it. That. I haven't, haven't read that yet. All right. So things to look for that are coming up in sleep is World Sleep Day. So look yes. out for Moira's email. And yeah. <laughs> Do the challenge, please. <laughs> and also the Sleep Down Under, which is the annual scientific meeting of the Australasian Sleep Association. So abstract submissions are open from now until the 1st of June. So if you're wanting to submit research to that meeting, and it's a really good meeting to present research, look for that. Mm. The sleep meeting, the annual sleep meeting in the United States is in Boston, June 3rd to 7th, and the World Sleep Congress in Prague between October 7 to 11. Are you going? I'm trying to work out which one to go to. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'd love to go to all three, but oh, no, I'm just yeah. not going to be practical. I can't do Prague, but I'd love to. <laughs> yeah. And then our next episode is going to be published on April 3rd, and we're going to talk about headaches. Now, headaches aren't necessarily just sleep relevant, but it's actually a pretty frequent symptom in people that we see with sleep problems. So I'm going to try and tease that out and have a local headache specialist talk to us just about what headaches are and then get some international guests who've published some research, you'll like this, Moira, on behavioural changes you can make to improve sleep and headaches. Oh, excellent. Fantastic. Right. Thank, thanks for listening. If you've got any suggestions or questions for us, email us at podcast at sleephub.com.au. Review us on iTunes because it lets other people know about the podcast and allows us to help produce good quality content. We had a lovely review on iTunes from uh, Kate, and we'd love to see more of those. Yeah, thanks, Kate. <laughs> All right, we'll talk to you next month. Cheerio. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.